Hi friends, Myra here. I wanted to come on before today's episode to give you a really brief preface for a couple of reasons. One, a reminder that today's episode is the final episode in our Summer Stories mini-series, which was a standalone from our typical Made New season. But two, I wanted to let you know that my friend's story today is unique for a couple of reasons. One, because I lived part of it alongside of her. And so this is a unique vantage point for me as an interviewer of this podcast, and I think that will come through. Two, I wanted to let listeners know that her story has some sensitive content and terms, and we want to speak truth and use the correct terminology, but I also want to uh, serve you listeners, especially those who might be in the car with kiddos, and give you a chance to decide when you want to listen to today's content. As always, the hope of this podcast is that you'll be pointed to the good news of the gospel of Jesus and that God will be glorified as the faithful healer that he truly is, no matter where we are on our healing journey. Our hope is that survivors of trauma will know that they are not alone and that what happened to them was not okay, that they are seen and loved by the God of the universe. Thanks for listening, friends. Welcome back to Made New. I'm Myra, and we are continuing our Summer Stories mini-series. And I am so excited to be here with my friend Jody today. Hi, Jody. Hi, Myra. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. I am really excited for today's conversation, um, even though it has some heavy topics to it. It does. Yes. Um, and so I'm so grateful for your willingness to come on and share your story. Um, so just so our listeners have a little bit of background, um, you and I met mm -hmm. about four years ago in some pretty unusual or unique circumstances. Absolutely. <laughs> yes, I agree. <laughs> we could say. Yes. Um, and so we are going to get to that. Um, but why don't you just start, Jody, by telling us a little bit about yourself and sharing your story with our listeners? Okay. Um, I grew up in a little... I call it a blink town because if you blink, you won't know you're there. <laughs> um, Outville mm. um, in Ohio. I'm the youngest of five and there's huge age gap. So I was the baby and always protected. We lived there till I was 11. Then we moved to Columbus. My parents put me into a Christian school in Gahanna. And um, my dad, um, we start, he started a company in Columbus. And going into my eighth grade year, there was a new Christian school that was starting. Mm. And he put me there because they promised to go all the way up to graduation. Um, there was six people in my class that first day of school. Wow, <laughs> that's small. Started it on my birthday. Oh. I turned 13 the first day of school. And that's where my story starts. The, the gym teacher very quickly became um, the homeroom teacher. And he was the brother-in-law of the principal. Mm. Toward the end of that year, then he became my abuser. So for purposes of my story, um, I'm going to call him by John Doe instead of his real name. Okay. He was the fun. Everybody wanted to be around him. He was the basketball coach. I was 13, spreading my wings there a little bit. You know, you're just starting to get interested in boys. And um, it was um, so toward the end of the eighth grade, he uh, kissed me for the first time. And until recently, I didn't realize that he was probably grooming me before that. Yeah. By the senior year, then we were meeting two to three times a week. 
I thought it was love. I wanted to believe it was love. He told me he loved me at the end of my senior year, three weeks before graduation. Um, somebody told the principal that they had heard about this relationship. And the principal called me in and asked if it was true, threatened me with my diploma if I denied it and he had to prove it. And then, um, so I, I said it was true and it was determined that he would be fired and they wanted me to leave the state to get away from everybody. We went down to uh, the PTL network. Mom and I stayed there for three weeks and dad traveled back and forth. And by the time I got back, then graduation had already happened and school was out. It hit home then when my friends weren't allowed to see me, um, that I was the one that everybody thought did wrong. He wasn't charged. He wasn't turned in at all. My dad said that it was to protect me, and I think he truly believed that. But adult Jody knows that it was more about protecting other people. Um, statistically, it's not just one victim. As far as I know, I am the only victim, but statistics, right. <laughs> you know. That's why they have that rule. The school was required to report it. But again, there was family connection. there. And what year did you first meet your abuser? 1983. Okay. So early 80s, when it first started, mm -hmm. a different cultural oh, yeah. context in terms of awareness about sexual abuse, statutory rape. It um, wasn't talked about. I mean, just even sex wasn't talked about we didn't have sex ed until you know yeah. it wasn't commonly talked about and I honestly was so innocent I did not even know what it meant I knew the word mm. I didn't know what it meant yeah um so it was after that first time it was like an aha moment of oh that's what that means that's yeah. what that is I didn't know anything I didn't know what to expect I didn't know why there was blood I didn't know anything um, and there was no internet to look up at that time you know there was no google mm -hmm. so in that sort of vacuum of information mm -hmm. and resources you're experiencing this sexual abuse from a teacher I mean, mm -hmm. you trusted mm -hmm. um, and you were 14 when he first raped you, 13, when he kissed you. Correct. Mm -hmm. Where were you when that first okay. assault happened? So, like I said, there was a very small school. The principal knew everybody in the school, and I babysat his kids. Mm. Um, so I I even spent the night in his house, you know, the, just if they were going to be super late, I just slept on the floor with the kids. And um, and you said this was the brother-in-law. This was the brother-in-law of the teacher. Correct. Who became your yes. Abuser. Okay. Yes. Which he was married. He, you know, obviously, he was married to the principal's sister. So there was a day of school that the principal's daughter was sick. And he pulled me out of school and had me go to my abuser's house because he lived right across the street from the school. So I was over there for the whole school day watching her until his wife was off work. So while I was there, he came over to give me a test that I had missed and um, it was then that he he kissed me. Um, yeah, yeah, so many feelings. You know, it it's not it's different than being attacked. It's it's a mind game almost. You know, you I wanted to believe that this was because he felt 
something for me. Um, and I did for a long time. I think that's so important because I think overall we have a limited understanding of what sexual abuse is, um, of what it includes. And even the word rape, statutory rape is specifically for people, adults who are in authority positions mm -hmm. like teachers, coaches, right. and they're leveraging that position of power and authority to abuse mm -hmm. someone. And so I think even that question about what that word means so often because of movies and I think a limited understanding, people in general tend to think that means an attack, like the word you just used mm -hmm. with physical restraint and things like that. Right. Um, but I think it's really important to broaden our understanding of what these words mean and what is actually being done. Right. And you use the term a mind game. And it is, it is a component of control and power that does render the victim powerless. Mm -hmm. But because there's no hands tied, right. people think, well, well, you willingly went and met him. Mm -hmm. So it's not just him. You're still to blame too. Right. And that gets into your mind and it affects you for the rest of your life. There's shame, there's um, self-doubt. So you know, your self-worth just goes down the toilet. But it's very important to know that that's not the truth. You are not at fault. It's not your fault. Yes. Um, he was the adult. He was the teacher. It doesn't matter what I did. Right. Um, not that I did anything, but still. Right. Um, and that's so important because m minors do can, literally cannot legally give consent. And that's why we have laws that we have in our country. Um, but you are so correct that a, an adult in that authority position has the responsibility to protect and to care for kids, not to use them for their own sinful gratification. But that narrative became a part of your story as you grew older mm -hmm. um, because the abuse didn't come to light until you were a senior, but it began when you were Correct. only 14. Right. Is that right? Well, 13. 13, 13. yeah. And so that lie mm -hmm. that you were equally culpable right. was very much a part of the narrative. Yes. Mm. And, you know, when I came back from my sabbatical <laughs> and parents wouldn't let their daughters see me, then that just put that more on my shoulders. That summer kind of went a little crazy. So this was after your senior year. Yeah, after in between senior, yeah, right after senior year. Um, I didn't, I hadn't decided on what to do. I didn't know whether I wanted to go to college. I didn't. I was kind of waiting to see what he thought I should do, you know. Or I never asked him, but I didn't want to make myself unavailable. Mm -hmm. I was still in that love, hoping, you know. But um, I decided to go back to go to Franklin University in Columbus. But that summer. There was lots of parties, and so I drank quite a bit that summer. Numbed a lot of pain. My brother, he's nine years older than me, was getting divorced. I was 18 and wanted to be out of the house to continue to do this without my mom and dad's disapproval hanging over me. And um, so I moved in with him, and, you know, parties continued. And a week before I moved in with my brother, John called the house, told me he missed me, wanted to get together again. And I hadn't, my parents didn't push counseling. I had not been to any counseling at all. So I said yes. And so it started up again and made it easier because I was moving out of the house and moving with Greg. I was living with him for a while. 
dropped out of school toward April of 89. I realized I was pregnant and um, told John, and um, he pretty much disappeared after that. Abortion was not an option at all. I didn't know whether I was going to keep him or not, but abortion I didn't agree with. I went to a counselor to try to determine whether I was capable or whether I should or wanted to keep the baby, and I determined to keep him. My dad told me he did not think I could survive giving him up after I'd made the main decision. They, it was all my decision. He did not push me to any which way. They just told me that they were too old to raise a child, and if I kept them, I had to raise them. Um, they would help, but they couldn't do it themselves. And um, I had the baby. Just said, okay, so now I'm responsible for him. I have to do something with my life. And I went back to school, would go home, take care of the baby. That was my life. There was no friends that could anywhere close to understanding what this life was about. Really wasn't that common for someone that young. I mean, it happened, but in, and especially in the church area, it wasn't something that happened a lot. Now I'm a single teenage mom. You're told throughout church that that's not what you're supposed to do. So I found a deep depression. I didn't want to do anything. I would lay on the couch and read books just to get out of my life and into some other happy ending story. Mm. Um, skip school a lot. And finally, my mom got me into counseling. My dad did not believe in counseling. He said there was nowhere in the Bible that counseling existed. Um, so it was against his wishes. But she got me into a wonderful counselor, um, very Christian-based. Um, and she made me realize that it was not a love story. It was sexual abuse and that it shouldn't happen, that he should be in jail. And um, when I first got there, he had me do a, a test and it showed that I was almost suicidal. I never thought of it because I knew how to take care of the child. So I got better, learned how to push it down, probably quit counseling a little too early, but I was able to get back out and live it. I didn't date for five years. You know, it it was a very lonely time. I uh, got my accounting degree and then went on, got my CPA license and met my husband. We ended up having two girls and pushed feelings down, lived life. You know, you, you push them down so you can live. Uh, nobody wanted to talk about it, you know. I didn't want to talk about it. It was shameful. So then um, someone that had gone to my school emailed a church. And this church is the, the church that John started. Um, it had grown to one of the biggest churches or the biggest church in Licking County. He um, let him know that he knew what he had done and that he knew he had a child with me and that he was going to go public. This enters my rose age. <laughs> yes. So for our listeners to know, um, that church that John had started with his wife my husband and I started attending um, right around the beginning of 2014. And it seemed like a great gospel-centered growing church. We were really excited to start going. And and John was a talented speaker, right? Mm -hmm. Very charismatic um, and not only gifted speaker, but could articulate the gospel, could walk through a passage of scripture and unpack the gospel truth from it. And I had known this. I had heard about it and uh, it was hurtful. Mm -hmm. I felt like God was blessing them 
and tearing me down. Mm. So how, how could he be in that position? And I'm still on antidepressants, you know. Where's the rightness in that? So after we were there for a couple years, my husband went on staff mm-hmm. at the church. And so I remember I was at the zoo with the kids and he let me know they had gotten this email from John's wife that said, emergency meeting, all staff, council, and elders be there with their spouses tonight. And we were like, what in the world is going on? We all kind of gather and John comes out, but he has another pastor come out sort of speaking on his behalf and told us the gist that someone from the old school where John used to teach had sent in a letter that they knew about some inappropriate activity (laughs) and that there had been a child born from that and their daughters didn't know. So John and his wife went on to have two daughters and they had no idea about you or your son. Mm -hmm. And no one at the church besides one elder knew anything about this, about your story, about the assault, about the child that you had had. And so we're sitting there and we sort of get this bombshell, but it was all fairly vague um, Mm -hmm. in terms of detail. So the general response that night from everyone who was there was support for John. Mm -hmm. and even things being said by other elders, like this is an attack from the enemy, you know? So there was this overwhelming sort of cry for support for him. But I remember standing there and physically feeling like someone had punched me in the gut. And so it began an extremely, I don't even want to say that because it's not about our experience, but let me go back a little bit. Well, it it does matter because it's not just my, at this point in time, it's not just my story. It becomes... The story of the church too, and they, it affected a lot of people in the church. Yes, and him not telling the full truth. Just I wasn't obviously I wasn't there, but I've been told that he was open about having an affair, being on drugs, and everybody thought, well, he's just he's just humble and he's open about it. So, and I've had people come up to me since then and say, we we didn't know, you know. Who asked? When somebody tells you they had an affair, who asked? Well, how old was she? Right. You know, it's assumed they're an adult. And... Right. It was not an affair. It was child abuse. Mm-hmm. It was statutory rape. It was, like you said, something that he should have been arrested for. And he would be a registered sex offender and not able to Correct. start a church. Mm-hmm. So after that initial emergency meeting, there was a lot of confusion And sadly, a lot of fallout, um, just a lot of pain. Um, It ended up in a church split where some people believed that he, that this was long in the past. We would hear that phrase like this is, this is under the blood. Why is it so important now? Why is it important now? Don't we believe that God forgives and redeems? He should just be reinstated back to senior pastor. And then there's, there were those of us who did not believe that that was true because mm-hmm. there are biblical qualifications for an elder. And this was not just something that was a past sin. This was something that was intentionally buried and lied about. And so let's go back to when you first found out that the student from your school, mm-hmm. former classmate, 
had emailed the church. Well, it had been 30 years. I'm sure they thought nothing was going to come to light. You know, I hadn't ever gone after them for child support. I've never done anything. And why would they think that it's going to happen now? Mm. You know, I'm sure that was a big shock to them. Mm. So after your emergency meeting, um, one of the ladies that's on the council suggested that they find me. Suggested um, that the church reach out to you? Yes. Mm. Um, her fear was that it would become public somehow and I would hear about it and then, you know, freak out. Just be blindsided. <laughs> blindsided by it. Um, so she, he gave her my name and um, she found me, called, and I was blindsided by it. <laughs> <laughs> it was surreal. I don't even know how to describe it. She said what was going on. I was completely shocked that he admitted it. And I'm thinking maybe this is all going to come out. Number one, he might finally be punished for what he did. Um, it was the first time somebody said, I heard your story. I know what happened. It was wrong. I'm sorry. It should never happened. First time anybody ever said that. She, you know, was saying, well, this is what we were told. I don't, yeah, I don't remember the whole conversation, but my heart rate was up the whole time. They, and she truly believed at the time that they, the church was going to get rid of him, that it was just, you know, a no brainer. But um, as you well know, it took eight, 10 weeks for them to decide for sure. Um, mm. I talked to her a couple more times. I called her, which is completely out of character. Thanked her for calling and um, we struck up a friendship and I ended up meeting her and um, would tell her more, you know, slowly open up a little bit more and she'd ask permission to pass it on, you know, some of what you said was important. I would like to tell them. Sure. What, what did I say? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, so she would take what you shared and ask permission to share yes, with the elder. Right. She didn't want to, but they specifically didn't ever ask me any questions. That was in July. The end of August, I went out to visit my sister in Colorado and was telling her everything that was going on. And throughout that vacation, she encouraged me to tell my side of the story. And so we decided I should write a letter to the elders. We went to some hot springs out there and relaxed and talked. And then she went back to work and I spent the days just letting memories, things that I pushed down for years, surface in random order and would write down whatever I remembered. And I couldn't believe how much I had forgotten. It is so easy to forget that this happened. If you know, she would read what I wrote at the end of the day and she's like, Oh, oh my gosh. And she helped me get those random thoughts into some kind of order and wrote a letter um, that told my side of the story and sent it to the elders. Shortly after that, then John called me at home, wanted to meet. Um, I said, no, I couldn't do that as I'm shaking mm. to death. I can't imagine. Just you picked up the phone and hear the voice of your abuser on the other end with no warning, no sort of right. agreement to have this phone call. I guess the term now is trigger. Mm -hmm. Very triggering. I don't know. I didn't want to meet with him. Um, if he wanted to tell me something, he could write me a letter. And then he, he did ask to meet with my son. And that's his story, but they did meet. And that's the night I met you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> my son had me drop him off to meet him. And then I met you. Mm -hmm. and you can attest that I was a mess <laughs> as I walked in there. As anyone would be 
So the friend who was on council, who you had first spoken with, she reached out to me and said, Jody asked if I could be with her um, on this night because she's going to be dropping off her son to meet John mm -hmm. for the first time and then has to be somewhere nearby so that when they're finished, she can pick her son up. So our friend couldn't meet you that night. She, she really wanted to be there with you, but couldn't. And so asked if I could. Mm -hmm. And so I just remember we had agreed to meet at an olive garden mm -hmm. nearby where you dropped your son off. Yes. And I just remember thinking like, how will, how will it go? Like I said, I, I was remember thinking, I want to hug her, but I don't want to just like attack her with a hug, you know, like I want her to get. And I walk chance. in and I fall into your arms. <laughs> <laughs> and we both just stood up and like moved toward each other and just hugged. And yes. there was such an understandable um, amount of emotions. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And so we sat in that booth in mm -hmm. the bar area of Olive Garden and started to get to know each other for the first time. And yes. Um, share stories. And so you were the second person that I <laughs> shared so much with. Yeah, that was an emotional night. And yeah, so then we got our friendship going and uh, slowly you dragged other people into the circle. <laughs> it's funny to think about how I don't have like specific memory of how it all happened, but um, I know another friend from church also had experienced some abuse and had the Lord had given her a passion for healing from mm -hmm. trauma and had been through therapy. And another friend had past connections to the church you used to go to when you were young. Yes, uh -huh. And there were just all these overlaps and God ended up bringing this group of women together. Mm -hmm. And I remember gathering to have dinner together and mm -hmm. you being able to bring yearbooks and letters and pictures, I, mm -hmm. pictures. And I feel like God just used that group of friends to start to understand the weight of what happened and to, I don't know if this is how you feel, but it seemed like you were able to say this did happen and it wasn't okay. And to begin to unbury, mm -hmm. like you said, like yeah. I had buried, I buried it deep and moved on with life. And so all these years later, the unburying started yes. to happen. Yeah. Not of my doing. I mean, this came completely out of the blue to me. It was a good time and it was a very difficult time at the same time. Yes. It felt like, you know, you said, you said at the meeting that they said the devil, this was the devil working. And I think it was actually God working. I think he was in the timing there. I don't think I would have been ready to go through this a couple years earlier. The timing was right and he knew it and he brought it out into the light. And um, where I can say, you know, I am a survivor of sexual abuse and not have to be ashamed about it. Um, it's a very hard thing to do. And there's a lot of us out there. I mean, the statistics are what, one in four women have been abused. Wow. It's unbelievable. And yeah. I believe the average age of somebody being able to tell their stories is in their 50s. Mm -hmm. That's way past the time that the statute of limitations is up. So even if I wanted to press charges, I can't do it now. Even when he started his church, I was able at that point in time, I could have pressed charges at that time. I totally agree that it was God's kindness and his sovereign timing. And I do not believe at all that it was an attack of the enemy. I know that the enemy wants us isolated and filled with shame and dead in every sense of the word. But our God graciously brings what has been kept in the dark into the light mm -hmm. for our healing and for our freedom and for his glory. 
And we cannot avoid that really hard question of if God is sovereign and all powerful and good and loving, then why are children raped? Like, why does that even happen? And I can't answer it Hmm. well, but I feel like every time we share our story and we bring things into the light and we notice and say how God has turned it for good that it is a pushing back against that darkness. Mm-hmm. I think of the story of Joseph. Mm-hmm. You know, his brothers tried to kill him and they tried to harm him. And it was all for that purpose. And God turned it around to where he actually was able to save them. You know, he brought good to the bad. And I believe that's what he's doing here. Yes. You know? Yes, absolutely. I do too. So yeah, I ended up with a good support group from that church. Um, <laughs> strange, but true. And uh, <laughs> they prayed for me, prayed over me, and you know they finally decided to um, separate from him. And I remember when they asked permission to say my name in one of their announcements. Do you remember? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what they they were going to make an announcement and wanted to know what I wanted them to call me. I remember being in a group and like. All right, it's time. Just go ahead and say my name, you know. And that was scary. <laughs> yeah. And so I slowly started going to church, that church, which some people think is weird, but it was the first people that supported me. I mean, at that time they'd been separated, so I could only assume that the people there believed me and believed it was wrong. So I felt it was safe to go in there. It wasn't John's church. It was God's church. I remember being very shaky, (laughs) but God slowly brought me in and brought me back. And I kept wanting to go and feeling led to go um, and getting stronger. I know the group wanted me to be able to tell my story on a larger scale. And it took a while, but about a year, almost a year, I was able to put my story down in words and um, Wade Mullen agreed to put it on his blog. Yeah. As you talked about our group of friends kind of being able to be around you and I was just struck again by how grateful I am that I got to have a front row seat Mm -hmm. to what God was doing in your life and how he was unburying those things in order to bring you healing and um, you blessing us, you demonstrating to us strength and steadfastness and bravery and all these things. The first time you wrote your letter to the elders, then when you gave them permission to use your name, and then when you wrote your story out and then for Wade to share it on his blog, Mm -hmm. all of that and being able to see that first, like just up close, it was such a gift to me and God used it for my healing too and my growth too. (laughs) And that's our God. He uses our pain and our stories that include all the really, really hard. And then he turns it for good, like you were saying with Joseph. And so I feel like I've been the beneficiary (laughs) of your journey. (laughs) I'm sure that people have been maybe sort of flabbergasted that you have found your church home at this local gathering of believers where your abuser used to pastor Mm -hmm. and what he started. But like you said earlier, it's not his church. It's God's church. I felt like I was supposed to be there. Um, 
that people needed to see. I was okay. It's still working, but there's a happy ending to this story, you know? This is the beauty of what happened at the end. What have been some of those beautiful things? My son was able to meet his father, and they could decide on how that went. He was able to meet his sisters and gain a relationship that really helped him. His older sister uh, is married to a pastor, and he went to church. And at the beginning of this, he was an atheist, and he is now engaged and I'm going to be a grandma and yeah just that we were able to get past this and it's got to be hard to not have a father's name on your birth certificate and he always felt he wasn't good enough that's why he didn't have a dad Mm. and he knows it's not true now and he believes it's not true now you know yeah so um but there's also you know lessons I guess still to be learned too and you ultimately um got to forgive and I, I have forgiven him. Not, you don't have to have them ask for forgiveness for you to forgive. It's not about them. It's about you and your own heart. In my opinion, the longer you hate, the longer you are mad, um, it hardens your heart. And it makes it hard to move past that. And it makes it harder to find peace. Like my dad always wanted me just to let it go. Mm. You just got to let it go. It'll get better if you just forget about it. Mm. And it it doesn't. You can live, but you're not fully living. So I think I said one time, you got to let in. You got to let in the love of God and really accept that he is there, even in the bad times, mm. even when you got blinders on and don't want to look at him, that he's there with you. That's so good. So. I hope our listeners get that key takeaway of the importance of forgiving, not because it says that what they did was okay, not because it lets them off the hook, but because it opens our hearts up to the good that God has available to us Mm -hmm. um, to be fully living, to flourish, to be more emotionally healthy, and to then be able to share that hope with others. So what do you hope that listeners take away from your story. I hope they hear a story of of forgiveness. Anybody that's been abused, that they know that they are not to blame. God is with them. I just recently came to that conclusion that he was there even in the dark. Um, And I think it goes back to the good coming out of the bad. It's up to you to to do that, I think. I think sometimes it requires work to make it turn into good. Um, I could have very easily said, I don't want to talk to you again and hung up the phone and went back to my life. So it was, um, it would have been my loss. Mm. Um, so sometimes it requires bravery. Um, there's just so many people that are hurting, um, just to give them hope. Yeah. You had mentioned the sad statistics earlier and you're so right. And I think that there are so many men and women who have done the burying (laughs) that are on the verge of their unburying. And my hope is that your story and our time here together will be one scoop full of dirt, (laughs) one (laughs) shovel full to start to dig out. Mm -hmm. Um, And you're right about it requiring work and it is not comfortable. Mm -hmm. It is not. um, And it feels so risky but I've heard you talk about that 
feeling that like God was drawing you. And you Mm -hmm. mentioned like, I wanted to come to church. I wanted to be, you know, in this space with surrounded by these people and mostly back in relationship with God. Um, And I know from our friendship, you shared that you never stopped believing in God. Right. But all of the hurt and all of the the compounded trauma, the initial trauma, and then the trauma of being ostracized mm-hmm. for the abuse mm-hmm. you endured. Um, and you mentioned your diploma being held hostage, basically telling you, you know, you can either not graduate. Um, but even though they gave you your diploma, you didn't get to walk in Correct. the graduation ceremony. Um Oh, injustice upon injustice and then it being buried and then all those years that through it all you didn't stop believing that God was real but those I think those lies from the enemy have a way of of clouding our ability to see the gospel rightly and that's what our enemy wants mm-hmm. he wants us disbelieving and misbelieving the right. truth about who God is and who we are so I praise God for how he came after you. Yes. And yeah. Let me be a part of it, of seeing it. I don't think without that group, I don't think I would have grown. I don't think it would have happened the way I wouldn't have done this on my own. Mm-hmm. I needed that support. Um, I love God's design for community. He puts his spirit in people who he has regenerated and made alive. And then we get to link arms with each other. And I want listeners to know you don't have to have lived through the exact same trauma that someone else is walking through in order to love them and listen and say things like, I am so sorry that you endured that. We can be that for each other. And that's what we're called to. That's how gospel community pushes back on this darkness. Um, of sin and then shame and then isolation. God's design is so good. Thank you so much, Jody, for your willingness to come and share your story. Um, I literally, even though we've been sitting here across from each other recording, I literally just read the words on your shirt and it says, he left the 99 to find me. Yes. <laughs> Friend. Yep. Someone gave, someone special gave me this shirt and uh, I felt that. That is our shepherd, that Mm -hmm. he does leave the 99 to go after the one. And there are limitations even to that language. Like he never leaves us, (laughs) but that imagery of his heart for the hurting and the lost and of all places, it's the kingdom of Jesus Christ where the lowly are seen and cared for and lifted of all places in the world. It's God's economy that values brokenness and lowliness, lowliness in spirit, lowliness of heart, um, where he uses the weak to confound the strong. And yet the very places that are meant to highlight that upside down kingdom are the spaces where we forget that. And it's the great speaker and the talented people who get put up on this platform and the lowly and the hurting are trampled. Mm -hmm. And that is a travesty that I believe God is wanting to correct and write. The Bible calls the church, big C church, the bride of Christ. 
and he is purifying his bride. Mm -hmm. And one day he will present her to himself spotless without blemish, but we're in process. Yes. And this topic of the abused feeling like they're not as worthy as the great talented speaker whose character doesn't match his charisma that has to change mm -hmm. and it is for the good of the church we speak as members of her we speak from inside saying we want to see good we want to see the flourishing of the bride of christ and so this is an extremely important topic so i'm thankful that you are sharing your story for those who are burying it or for those who are burying something similar and for those who are members of the church who want to see her improve and who want to work for that improvement. Mm -hmm. So you're giving very practical ways that we can do that. We can have eyes open and ears open for the hurting. We can reject the status quo of just supporting a leader when there's red flags and something that might be going wrong. We can speak up, ask questions, um, and yeah. support when people do come forward with their story. Right. Well, I am confident, Jody, that listeners are going to be blessed by your story and helped by your words. And I'm just so grateful that you are willing to come on and chat today. Well, I want to thank you for having this platform, not just for my story, but for everyone else that you talk to that to get everybody's stories out. It, it's healing to tell your story. Mm. Very healing. I agree. God is good. Let's pray and we'll close this one out today. Okay. Thanks so much. Father God, you are so good. Even when it's hard to see your justice, when it's hard to understand the evil that's in the world, God, you are good. You are the creator of all things and you are you are just, you are going to return one day. And while we wait, we ask that your spirit help us be people who are looking to you, who want to obey you because we know that's for our joy. We know that's for our good. And we know that your glory being seen and understood is the best for everyone. Um, God, I praise you for Jody. I thank you for how you have created her and knit her together for the way that you sovereignly ordained and scripted for our paths to cross. Thank you for her friendship. Thank you for the bravery that you have given her. God, I pray that you use this episode to help the hearer. You see them right now where they are, whether it's in their car or in their house or on a walk, you see them. And I pray that you will reach out and that you will help them feel your nearness, God, and that they will begin to encounter people and circumstances that you have already put into motion that will bring about their healing and their freedom because you are so good. Thank you, God. We are yours and we love you. In your name we pray. Amen. <laughs>